Good morning, everybody. So um, this morning, uh, I'm going to end this meditation just five minutes early, this this period, so that the people who are going to take eight precepts today can um, stay behind in the hall and we can do a little ceremony and formally take the eight precepts together. So the rest of you can uh, just go a bit earlier to walking meditation or your group meetings. Um, and of course, if anybody wants to stay in the hall, you know, and carry on sitting, you don't have to leave, but that's just offer that option. And then we'll just do an eight precept ceremony for those of you who are going to do eight precepts. And there won't be any, if you, if you want to do eight precepts, but you don't feel comfortable taking part in the ceremony, that's okay too. But it'd be nice to have the option to just honor that together. So this morning, um, continuing uh, to let the foundation of our practice be the awareness of the body and the, the body breathing. So building things on the what's known as the first foundation of mindfulness, the awareness of the body. And this, this never sort of disappears from practice. This is always... Um, the foundation of what we're doing. And I'll offer some more guidance around that when um, we begin and do the guided meditation. And really an encouragement to um, use this reference point of the body to really feel our experience as we're feeling it. So we have these different words for uh, noticing, sensing, feeling, you know, all these ways that we describe this process of being aware of what's happening, listening. So a a person on my last retreat was just telling me how her grandmother used to say, I'm just going to go and listen to my bones. You know, this is one of the ways we really attend deeply to ourselves. So this sense of listening deeply to our experience, receiving experience, knowing our experience as it's happening. So letting the body and the breath be a place where we can rest our attention, where we can anchor our attention, find a sense of steadiness and poise in the middle of all the different other things that pass through the mind. So this image of thoughts passing through the mind like clouds can be a very helpful one. So this is, this is, we use this anchor, this resting place as a, a reminder to stay present, as a support for staying present, to just notice what's happening right now. And then another possible thing we can be aware of, we can, we can ask ourselves, is it, is it possible to feel, to have a sense, not just of what I'm experiencing, but how I'm relating or how I'm in relationship to what I'm experiencing? What's my relationship with my experience right now? And then we notice whether the heart feels relaxed and open and receptive to what's happening or whether there's some kind of argument with it, whether one of the so-called hindrances are present, whether there's some aversion, ill will, kind of wanting more of it, trying to check out from it. So all these things we we can also be aware of. 
So this is, this is another, another thing that one can just uh, become sensitive to. How am I relating to what's happening? Is there a possibility of softening a little around what's happening, opening, finding more space in the heart and the mind, um, a sense of allowing? And we're not judging any of this, we're just exploring. This whole practice is an, an exploration so even if we're, we're resting the attention with a particular object like the breath or the body, to let that be a really spacious attention. So I, I love what Christina Feldman says about mindfulness of the breath. She says it's not defensive breathing. It's like you're not using your breath to shut out the rest of your experience, but to invite a sense of spaciousness to all your experience. And yesterday I, I mentioned this uh, advice that the Buddha gave to his son Rahula about letting your meditating mind be as vast as the earth or as vast as the, the water element through the whole earth, as vast as the sky, as vast as space. Uh, so this is a, a nice image to bear in mind. So we're getting to know ourselves not as, a, not as a story or a collection of stories, but directly in this moment as a process or a flow of processes that are changing and not exactly in our control, you might have noticed, and actually not, uh, not personal in the sense that none of, none of these experiences we have can totally define who we are and so they don't need to be perfect you know we can just let them be as they are and there should be a measure of relief in that like we don't have to perfect anything that we're experiencing we just can hold it in awareness so our refuge becomes the awareness not the, the content of awareness if you like that we can rest back into this uh, this awareness, this knowing that right now this moment is like this and then be fully present and available for what's, what's arising. So another thing, if you feel sort of reasonably settled and familiar with this practice, another thing that you, you might like to um, start uh, giving some attention to, to today is uh, the second channel in these four channels of mindfulness, if you like, the second foundation of mindfulness, which is um, the foundation of Vedana or feeling tones. And this is the aspect of experience whereby every, everything that we sense or experience, if we really look, has, a, has one of three feeling tones to it. We either experience it as pleasant or as unpleasant, or as neither pleasant or unpleasant, sometimes called neutral. So, for example, you know, if you if you gently touch your cheek or your leg or somewhere on your body, there's and you just gently touch yourself and stroke it. There's a normally there's a feeling of pleasantness around that. If you were to sharply pinch the back of your hand, most of us would experience that as unpleasant. So, touch sensations have a quality. Of pleasant or unpleasant, you know, this is natural. This is all part of experience, and a lot of experiences. You know, we notice that this this sense of pleasant or unpleasant is also 
something that changes with circumstances as, and is a conditioned thing. So I was having a conversation yesterday with someone about being really warm in the meditation hall and remembering that when I was leading the meta practice the other afternoon, I was actually feeling myself perspiring. And actually, for some reason, I, fi- I didn't find that unpleasant. I found it like I was, it was like I was sitting here sweating meta. <laughs> but somebody else was saying, oh, I was so uncomfortable in the hall. I was so hot and I was really sweaty. And a lot of this is just how we're conditioned, how we're habituated by past experiences to experience things. So, you know, for me, the the warmth and the humidity, it reminds me of going to Hong Kong as a child and visiting my grandparents. And for other people, it has different memories, you know. And then some other people, maybe uh, cold feels really pleasant and nice, a cool, refreshing breeze or the cool air. So even this experience of what's pleasant and unpleasant, you know, it's nothing, it's not personal, it's conditioned, But the reason we're asked to pay attention to it is because this is where we get reactive. That's what triggers the wanting or the not wanting, what triggers the experience of tanha or craving. But when we can sit back and just watch mindfully the arising of pleasant and unpleasant, there's a gap before we have to get really disturbed by it. So this is something that's really helpful to when we're collected, calm, centered and peaceful in our meditation to actually look at observing these feelings and noticing that they can just come and go without having to trigger a train of reaction. So Bonnie mentioned that in her talk the other evening of noticing that she was hungry, there was a pull to have this soup and then a recognition that it really wasn't very interesting and somehow the whole thing didn't really re-arise. So this is a really interesting place to pay attention in our meditation. And it may feel like there's too many things to do now. You know, your toolkit is growing really big and we're giving you so many suggestions. So I really, uh, you know, if you do nothing but feel feel your bottom on your seat for five days, you'll have had a really excellent retreat. You know, you don't have to pick them all up at once and really encourage you to have this sense of, Um, arriving again and again in the present moment be your priority using the body using the breath but if at some point one of these other things seems relevant to what you're experiencing or of interest or you need a little project then you can pick it up so one way of working with feeling tones or vedana is just to when when something is really obviously pleasant or unpleasant take an interest in it and see what that what that does to the mind and also notice if the experience changes over time because usually it will it will escalate or de-escalate or you notice when suddenly something else happens and that's that's no longer where the attention is Or you could just say for a part of your meditation practice for 10 minutes or five minutes even, you'll just, as as different things are arising in your awareness, just notice what's the feeling quality of this. Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant or neutral? So not to make it into a stressful project, but just an interesting area of inquiry at moments that it feels like a useful thing to do. Okay, so make yourselves comfortable and we'll sit together and I'll just guide us in.
just beginning with taking some care, some respectful care of this body to set up a sitting posture that supports you to be awake, comfortable, relaxed. And knowing how the the shape that we take with our bodies can uh, help to shape the mind as well. So if there's a sense of steadiness, balance, stability, that that can translate itself into uh, the tone in the mind and the heart. And then just noticing if there's any tension, tightness in the shoulders, the face, the hands, or anywhere else that could just soften a little. Feeling the support of the ground underneath you this sense of the body as earth resting on the earth, coming home to the earth. And letting yourself settle into that. And just as the body is resting on the earth, you could let the mind come and rest on the body. So rather than uh, clamping it to the body and pay attention to the body, having a sense of the mind is just coming to rest on the body. The attention awareness is coming to rest on the body. Feeling the sensations of sitting. And within that, allowing to emerge also the whole field of different sensations that we call breathing. However they appear to you.
There's no right way to experience or to perceive the breath. Something that we can just investigate and explore. But I'm going to just offer one possibility, which is a way that I find sometimes very helpful to um, to perceive the breath is rather than thinking of it as air that comes in through the nostrils down into the bottom of the lungs and out again which is perfectly valid and lovely if that works for you but you might also imagine the breath as starting from the ground upwards. So as if the energy of the breath enters through the base of the spine or through your sit bones or the whole area where the body is in contact with your seat. Or even the soles of your feet on the floor. And like a wave, it rises up through the body and then subsides again. And it might rise a little way up into the belly in the middle of the torso. It might rise all the way to the top of the lungs or beyond. So again, there's no right way to experience this. The sense that the breath energy is rising from below and falling back to the earth. And as you do this, you might have a real sense of being um, connected with the vertical dimension of your experience between the earth and the sky. Because so often we feel like we're moving forward in a horizontal plane. We're moving forward from the past into the future. But what if we were just completely present in touch with this vertical dimension of our being. So there's almost a sense of resting back into the flow of your experience rather than moving forward in it.
And there's no need to try to control the breath in any way, just allowing it to happen. But if any of these perceptions are helpful, then you can just play with these different ways of perceiving the breath or your own that come to you. And if too much focus on the breath actually diminishes rather than supports your sense of ease and relaxation, then just dropping that and taking your attention wider and just uh, tuning into the whole sense of the body sitting here, however that's experienced. Recognizing that the edges of what we sense with our body extend beyond this physical body. So there's a edgelessness to this experience.
Just noticing where the mind is now, what's predominant in your experience. Maybe just taking a little care of your practice is to use very slow breathing or you do a lot of yoga or whatever, just that, that the breath isn't too audible, that we're not um, doing special kinds of breathing and the breath can just be very natural and quiet. That's not to get you worried if you have a cold or anything like that.
So we've got time for a couple of questions about your practice. But um, first of all, maybe I would answer, say a little bit about a question from somebody asking us to speak a bit about eating meditation, because I don't think we've spoken about that yet on this retreat, and it's something that we're all doing. <laughs> so it's actually something I could go on about enormously, because in the monastic life and the monastic rules, there's lots and lots of rules about how you go about eating your meal. So it's something that is paid lots of attention to because it, it's such an interesting place for practice and a place where we can uh, really learn a lot and also lose a lot of mindfulness. Um, so I, I wonder how your experience of practice in the dining room is going. Um, but you know, maybe just a few thoughts about useful, useful things to do. And the first one, which is probably happening very naturally here anyway, is uh, an encouragement to slow down. You know, notice, you know, that we've got, first of all, the whole process of queuing and, and taking food and how um, we can really feel ourselves getting ahead of ourselves in a sense of hurrying sometimes or wanting things to hurry up. So a mindfulness teacher in England said something I found really fascinating to keep, con keep contemplating. She said, waiting is an aggression against the present moment. You know, when we catch ourselves feeling I'm waiting for something, you know, that's really interesting because, you know, what's that saying about uh, the present and our relationship to the present moment? So when you catch yourself with this sense, I am waiting, which you notice is just a perception and a story, you can feel, okay, so what's, what's actually happening in the present moment if I drop this sense of I'm waiting? So that's one interesting thing to do. And then another lot of monastic rules are around not, not looking around judgmentally at what other people are doing at the mealtime. And that's a really interesting thing to notice as well, how we compare, you know, we judge ourselves, we judge other people. We have so much stress around the shoulds and shouldn'ts of, of eating in our culture, probably worse than ever before. So you can notice what the mind does with that. It's a real opportunity for practicing metta. And then to just uh, enjoy the experience of having time to eat in silence and more slowly and to really savor your food. Notice, be present with, with eating as you're eating and really uh, taste, experience tasting, experiencing, experiencing chewing, taking the time to reflect on where the food has come from and express appreciation. I was laughing yesterday because I think in the groups that I saw, 50% of the things that people said that were really working for them on the retreat were that they were really enjoying the food. <laughs> you know, and that's great, so enjoy. But, uh, you know, let's in, enjoy mindfully. And... Uh, you know, it can be interesting also to take, do the practice of pausing between mouthfuls. So a, a monastic rule that I found really helpful is that you don't make up a mouthful of food till you've finished the previous one. Uh, 
And that's a really interesting thing to practice with because we notice we're kind of eating one mouthful, but we're already thinking, like navigating, where's the fork going next? Or even thinking about, am I going to go and join the queue for second helpings or not? And so on. So just, you know, letting these things, not to, not to judge any of them, but just ha having fun with noticing them and uh, remembering to keep coming back to this moment. So, yeah, practice in the dining room can be a lot of fun. <laughs> Okay, so maybe there's time for a couple of questions. Yes. Um, thank you so much for being here, your generosity and your patience and all the tools that you've given us. I really enjoyed the tool that you just gave us about breathing and uh -huh. imagining the energy coming up and then flowing down on your breath. My question is concerning one of those tools, which is metta. Mm -hmm. There were several references to the president or the leaders of this country, sort of oblique references, and there mm -hmm. seems to be some sort of an unstated covenant that we don't really express that. But mm -hmm. this is a very vital mm -hmm. living concern for all of us. Mm -hmm. There is not just personal angst about it, but collective mm -hmm. angst about what's happening to us. Mm -hmm. And one of the suggestions that was made uh, by the teachers was that we express metta. Mm -hmm. And then Bonnie had also talked about David Lloyd and the resistance and how, you know, we can't simply be concerned about the interior and mm -hmm. ignore all the exterior, the external structures that oppress and have very real living consequences in all of us. Mm -hmm. I'm reminded of this tale, I think it might be in the Jatanka tales about the Buddha coming, uh, encountering a situation where there was a pirate captain, mm -hmm. 500 people on the ship, and the Buddha weighed the consequences of what actions he should take, mm -hmm. and decided that the best thing for that pirate captain was to hasten him on to the next life. So did everybody hear the question? <laughs> no. Well enough. <laughs> okay, well, let, let me see if I can kind of encapsulate it in a nutshell. So we've been, you know, we've been offering all these tools for practice and specifically or particularly the practice of metta, the practice of goodwill or loving kindness. And we've also been tiptoeing around naming certain names in this room because partly because um, it triggers so much feeling for, for all of us, I suspect, or ma many of us. 
Um, and yet there is this sense of actually we, we perhaps we're not naming the elephant in the room, you know, that we we living in a situation where many of us feel that a lot of harm is in the process of being done or, or, or can be done and that there needs to be some intervention other than just sitting on our cushions practicing metta, yeah. Um, and how do we how do we square that with the teaching on on metta? And then there's this story of the Buddha in the Jataka tales, which are sort of post post canonical or later tales. But it's sort of the, about the Buddha intervening in the case of a pirate on a pirate ship with a hundred five hundred people on the pirate ship because he realised that actually in the situation the best thing to do would be to remove the captain of the pirate ship. Um, for the protection of living beings. So first of all, to say that actually, if this was the Buddha taking this action, that one of the qualities of the Buddha is that, they're com- that the Buddha is completely liberated from any sense of ill will. So whatever action he would have undertaken would have been undertaken without any sense of hatred or ill will in his heart. Most of us are not yet at this place. <laughs> You know, and therefore, when we engage in such actions, there are karmic consequences, and I think that there are karmic consequences not just as for us as individuals, but for the ramifications of what we sow in society when we act from a place of of hatred or anger. Actually, so I still think that the the cultivation, the practice of freeing the heart and mind from ill will is really essential if we want to create the kind of world we want to live in. Having said that, there's also a case for, you know, compassion is not just about being, you know, nice and pretty. There's also the the sense of fierce compassion, which actually um, sometimes needs energetic and decisive action, you know. Um, And so... This, none of this cultivation of metta is to say that strong resistance um, is, isn't often uh, the, the necessary or the useful thing to do. But it's so easy when we come together as groups of people for strong resistance to turn into something that actually is not wholesome and not skillful and that just perpetrates more hatred and division and violence. So I think this is a really tricky question, but what the world really needs is people with clarity and kindness and courage to actually, you know, take a stand on things, but who can themselves um, not lose perspective and actually support other people not to lose perspective. So leaders of the caliber of uh, Dr. King who can actually inspire other people to uh, act in a way that, you know, is is courageous is is decisive is effective but without perpetrating more um ill will and hatred in the world that's my short answer <laughs> okay just one uh, i saw you first so one one more yeah <laughs> Mm-hmm. 
So the question is what to do if you're practicing metta towards a difficult person, for example, your president or someone, and the, and the perception is that this person is rejecting the metta that's being offered. Well, first of all, to just name that that's a perception, you know, that's a perception of your own creation. I'm not saying that there's no, you know, reasons that that perception arises, that it's not a as valid as any other perception you might hold but actually that's your perception and if that's what's happening then I think um, stepping away is probably a skillful thing to do but you could also invite this would be a kind of further um, gearing up of the practice of metta if you like to to actually imagine see if you can stretch the mind and the heart to imagine that that metta could be received, you know. And that might be, it might be that you can't imagine him receiving it from you, but we're all of us human beings, we all need and appreciate kindness and metta. There are beings in the world from whom every other being uh, would, would be open to receiving some kindness. So you could still imagine them receiving it if you take the particular relationship between you and them out of the out of the equation, perhaps. Yeah. Okay. So I'd love to carry on, but I think uh, that's all we've got time for right now. So just two announcements. So one is about. Um, so. Uh, since um, Booker did the posture clinic yesterday and invited you to explore different ways of sitting and so on in the hall, there seems to be a bit of shortage of um, equipment for the sitting. So if you, if you know that you've kind of taken cushions and stools and things that you're not using on a regular basis, you know, you're not using them every sitting or you see you, you know, you've, you've left some stuff on a chair or whatever, it would be a real act of generosity to just return it to the back of the room and just take things temporarily as you need them to give peop other people an opportunity to use some of the bits and pieces that aren't being used right now. Yeah. And then the second thing is about walking around the loop or walking outside of IMS. And... Uh, we recognize and sympathize with the fact that some members of the community feel safer uh, walking around this area if you walk with somebody else. And just to say that that's, that's really encouraged and supported. Um, and, but uh, the suggestion is that you, you would walk at a little distance from each other and not you know, use it as a chance or a temptation to engage in conversation so that we do it in a way that respects the silence but just suggesting that people who would like to walk in the presence of others maybe um, would just gather outside the front of the building you know at the after the meal or af after lunch or after breakfast in those times that are free for walking and just kind of support each other in that way
I don't, there isn't a perfect way to do it without any communication at all. If there has to be a little bit of, you know, a whisper, are you going for a walk and stuff, that's okay. But just really as, as very much as you can, trying to respect the silence. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. All right, well, have a good morning. And uh, those who don't want to stay to take the eight precepts, you're welcome to leave the hall now. If you want to take the eight precepts, I don't know, would, I've got chanting sheets for hopefully the number of people who want to do eight precepts, and maybe you could put your hands up and could, could you distribute them? Because I didn't distribute them earlier, you guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.